everyone. Welcome to The Leaders Among Us. I am your host, Alec Nogales, President and CEO of the National Hispanic Media Coalition. On this show, I will be interviewing leaders from all sectors of activity, be it culture, politics, the arts, health, education, business, and on and on. What is a leader? I suggest to you that a leader is someone who is committed to making a difference in our society in the way they think, they act, create, and innovate positive change. Today's guest fits that description perfectly. He is Moctezuma Esparza, also known as Mocte. Mocte, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Before we start, I'm going to uh, give everyone, our listeners, uh, a view as to the many accomplishments that you have made and accumulated over the years. Monte um, is a winning producer, entertainment executive, entrepreneur, and community activist. He is best known for his contributions to the movie industry. Montezuma founded the Los Angeles Academy of Arts and Enterprise Charter School, is co-founder of the National Association of Latino Independent Producers, co-founder of the Smithsonian Latino Center, director on the corporate board of directors of the Motion Picture Television Fund, the board of directors of the Museum of Latin American Art, and a trustee of the California State University System. He is also was appointed to the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority and appointed by U.S. Senator Majority Leader at that time, uh, Harry Reid, to the Planning Commission of the National Museum of the American Latino. Um, he is best known for his films, and I'm sure that you, most of you, or many of you, I hope, have seen them. Walkout, chronically, um, who, which chronicled the Chicano uprising in East Los Angeles in 1968. His other films, and there's many, many, but I'll just name a few. Price of Glory, introducing Dorothy Dandridge, uh, Selena, one of my favorites, The Disappearance of Garcia Lorca, and the Milagro Beanfield War. Mokte, how did you accomplish all of this within the short years that you have been in this planet? Well, my father certainly has been uh, a, a huge presence in, in my life. He, he passed away uh, back in 1981, and he was 81 at the time. He was born in 1900. He came to the United States when he was 18 and uh, worked the railroads from uh, El Paso up to Utah and then came back down to Los Angeles and he settled here. And his entire life, he was an astonishing presence to me in that he worked. And I've come to understand that uh, Mexicanos of his generation and Mexicanos who come here today, tomorrow, one of our qualities among many is that we work. So he worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, his entire life, and uh, did not retire until he was 69 in terms of working full-time, and then he continued working part-time as, as a chef, as a cook. His influence uh, is still something that I'm attempting to live up to, his example to me of being committed, of doing the best that one can do, of honoring whatever work one has. He shared with me the, the nobility of work and... Uh, and it's virtue as what is the nature of being human is that we are here to live a life that can only prosper and achieve if we work. So all of that has been a presence for me throughout my life. 
and I have committed myself to doing the best that I can in whatever it is that is presented to me, whatever it is that um, I am thrust into. And your mom, tell us about your mother. I didn't get to know my mother. She died in childbirth with my younger brother when I was 18 months old. So I, I don't have any memories of her. I mean, there is an image in my mind that comes from a photograph, right? And so that, that's what I have for my mother. My brother suffered brain damage at birth. And so I didn't really uh, have uh, him actively in my life. And uh, he passed away in his 50s. Uh, never having been able to uh, learn to, to speak. So I was raised by my aunt, uh, who came straight from a rancho. My father asked her to come up and take care of me and my younger brother. And so I did have uh, her uh, to, uh, to thank for nurturing me and to giving me um, a home, you know, that uh, I could come home to. So I'm, I'm appreciative for my, my aunt's presence in my life. You were raised in East Los Angeles. How was that, going to school, being, for all intents and purposes, um, an only child? The neighborhood I grew up in, which is uh, in Boyle Heights, near the General Hospital, uh, just a block away from Ramona Gardens, which uh, I remember as Big Hazard, it was completely a Mexicano neighborhood. You know, the, the two or three blocks surrounding my home, everyone spoke Spanish. And... Um, Everyone, uh, you know, had a very clear sense of who they were and uh, of neighborhood. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a really idyllic and terrifying childhood, right? Because I didn't know when I was going to get my ass kicked, right, for growing up in Big Hazard and walking into the wrong block. Uh, and uh, at the same time, having the entire Southern Pacific Railroad as my backyard for miles and miles and seeing uh, hawks and pheasants and uh, all sorts of wildlife in the middle of Los Angeles in the early 50s. So it was, as far as I knew, from the point of view of uh, the neighborhood and my father, I, we could have been in Mexico. And at the same time, you know, as soon as I went to school, uh, kindergarten, fifth grade, and I did speak English, I, I recognized uh, the terror of the fact that uh, there was something different that I didn't understand which I have come to appreciate uh, since then, right? That we have a challenge as Mexican-Americans. I then began to understand that challenge, that in a land that my father described to me as our ancestral homeland, the Southwest, California, that he, he remembered because people that were alive in his life were alive when California was still Mexico. So it was very real to him. The, the Mexican-U.S. war, the occupation of Mexico, the invasion of uh, General Pershing into Mexico, all these were stories that he shared with me uh, as a young lad uh, that uh, made history alive. And that as I grew up, I began to appreciate the, the dilemma that we live in. You went to um, UCLA for your bachelor's and your master's. How did that experience contribute to the many things that you were later able to do? When I went to UCLA, I was already an organizer. I had already been trained. I had spent probably up at that point when I was, uh, I graduated, I was 17 years old from high school. I had already had four years of hardcore training as an organizer. 
spending time with uh, Father Luce, with the farm workers, uh, being trained by people like Bert Corona and Tony Rios, uh, other figures that uh, were giants to me back then. And I already had a sense of what my life was going to be like as committed to social change, committed to creating opportunity and uh, openings for Chicanos, Latinos to have a role in this life that was beyond what was prescribed for us, which was to be manual labor, to be the peones of this society, which was very clear. Uh, when I was growing up, there were almost no Latino professionals, even policemen were very few and counted. And uh, that didn't make any sense. My father took me to Mexico when I was nine years old, and I discovered a world where everyone was Mexican. The president, the judges, the shopkeepers, the doctors, the lawyers, the engineers. And that was not the world that I'd grown up in. So seeing this contrast, seeing this world where Mexicans had the possibility of achieving anything and coming from a community, uh, Los Angeles, where we did not have that possibility, where we did not dare dream of having possibilities, where we were actually actively being channeled into a very, very narrow life possibility, the possibility of being servants, the possibility of being manual labor, possibility of being secretaries, of cooks, of carpenters, of electricians at best. So that realization that my father made uh, crystal clear and concrete for me by taking me to Mexico was one of the things that uh, sharpened the contradictions of life in the United States for me. And how did you get into film, get interested in film and television, the arts? How did that happen? Well, I grew up going to the movies with my dad. It was, it's the most fond memory I have of childhood was his day off on Monday, where we would take the bus downtown to Broadway and we'd go to the Million Dollar and see Variedad, uh, see Agustin Lara, see uh, Maria Felix, see Pedro Infante, astonishing performances of great stars. And then walk down the street to the Los Angeles theater or to the state or to the Orpheum and see a Hollywood movie. And then walk further down to uh, Los Angeles Street to the California Theater where uh, he would play bingo because it was the whole auditorium was devoted to bingo on Monday nights. And we'd finally, you know, take the bus at one in the morning and get home close to two. Uh, and I'd spend this amazing day with my dad every Monday. Of course, I didn't get to school the next day until about 10 o'clock and the teachers finally got used to that. So those are where I saw and appreciated uh, the power of, of cinema, how it could transport, how it could take you to a new reality, how you would lose consciousness of your own life uh, and uh, be in another life. What was the first film that you made as a producer? Well, it's a student film, right? So my first film was a Project uh, A, Project One, and... Um, Uh, I made a little short with uh, two classmates, Mangas Coloradas and Francisco Martinez. They were both paratroopers. They were both professional boxers. And so on the campus of UCLA in the, the North Campus, there's a beautiful statue garden. 
and I had them uh, just waltz through the lilies, so to speak, and confront each other before a statue and then go into blows. So it was a silly little film. Because <laughs> I didn't really think that I was going to be a producer. I had uh, I'd taken the class uh, because I'd been drummed out of the history department at UCLA. I thought I was going to be a history major. But I uh, was given an incomplete by a professor there uh, who was teaching California history, Huntley. And um, I didn't cite his uh, book. He had written a textbook. Instead, I cited uh, North from Mexico by Carrick McWilliams and Decline of the Californios by Leonard Pitt. Still remember it quite well. And they were not on the approved reading list, so he gave me an incomplete. So I retreated to the film school where I had helped create a program called Ethnocommunications. What happened next? You do the film, you graduate from UCLA, you get a master's at UCLA, and what happened? Well... Uh, I again thought I was going to be uh, in politics or government or labor union activity. So I didn't apply to the film school. I applied to the Cora Fellowships, to some poli-sci graduate programs, and I was turned down. I was turned down everywhere I applied, even though I had a 3.8 and had graduated sum laude and uh, was, uh, I thought, a good candidate. But I was facing life in jail at the time and was under two grand jury secret indictments. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> what happened? Uh, uh, I had been indicted by the grand jury of Los Angeles. Why? Uh, for helping to organize the East L.A. walkouts. I was one of the East L.A. 13. And then I was indicted again a year later as one of the Biltmore 7 and facing life in jail that time. So grad school did not think I was a good candidate. But the film school wanted me back. And I had a crisis of uh, conscience of figuring out what it, what is this about? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an organizer. I'm, I'm deeply committed. I mean, my God, I'm, I was a fugitive. I was facing life in jail for being an organizer. And uh, the film school says, no, you, you're a producer. You get people to do things. That's what producers do. So I listened to that, and I got my degree. I convinced NBC to fund my graduate thesis as a documentary, which was called Cinco Vidas, which won an Emmy. And um, I petitioned the film school to let me graduate early because it's a minimum two-year residency. And most of my classmates stayed in film school for three, four, five, six, seven years because they wanted access to the equipment. I wanted out. I wanted to get out of school as fast as I could. And um, I graduated in a year and a half with my master's and my film was, I thought, my ticket to becoming a producer, employed, working in Hollywood. But that didn't happen. I walked around Hollywood for a year with my movie and my Emmy and um, realized that uh, Hollywood was not really that interested in what I wanted to do, which was to make movies about Chicanos. And I, that's what I told people, that I wanted to become a production manager at Universal. I had an interview there. I wanted to work at ABC, but that I was committed to making stories about Chicanos and Latinos and no takers. René Cárdenas and Claudio Guzmán were then putting together Via Alegre. And uh, that was the first opportunity. So David Ochoa, who was working there and had been a classmate and a dear friend, 
convinced uh, René Cárdenas, who was this very forbidding uh, figure who, with a sternness faced, I can remember, that he should employ me and as a producer. And he did. He hired me and I was a, one of the four producers of Via Alegre. And uh, that's where I finished my training, my postgraduate training to learning my skill set. And I should add that on your recommendation, I became one of the writers of Via Alegre. Thank you for that. Well, you were my classmate at UCLA in the film school. And I should also say the first three jobs that I got as a writer, it was on your recommendation. So I thank you. <laughs> well, that was my job, was to identify talent and promote it and support it. That is what I believe my job is as a producer. So there you have Via Alegre. Via Alegre is over. Then what happened? We went on hiatus, and I had a film crew that I'd put together, a team, and I didn't want to lose them. So I went out to pitch and to get contracts for short films. And so I went to Sesame Street, to the electric company, to Vegetable Soup, <clears throat> and uh, a couple of other uh, children's shows and got contracts uh, and was able to start a company. Uh, this is in 1974, and I never looked back. I never worked for anybody again. The films that you did, tell us about those films. Which was the big film, first film that you did? Agatha Martinez, a very small documentary where I did a portrait of this astonishing woman in northern New Mexico who lived on the land and grew her food and uh, refused to have indoor plumbing because, as she said, it would deny her the vigor of winter and who used everything, everything had a use, and who she lived with her family and uh, was connected to the cycles of life. That short documentary was nominated for an Academy Award. And uh, Esperanza Vasquez was the director, editor, and I was a writer, producer. And uh, that was the first uh, moment in which uh, I thought, okay, there's a career here that I can do things. And Esperanza Vasquez, as it turns out, became Esperanza Esparza later on in life. Yes, although she still claims her last name and she makes sure that I know that uh, <laughs> I better be on my toes. Uh, because she can leave whenever she wants. <laughs> what happened thereafter? Well, I, I spent seven years making documentaries uh, and children's films and PSAs, commercials. And I won over 200 awards for them, uh, Cine Golden Eagles, uh, Ohio State Award, uh, Clio's, mm -hmm. just about every award that you can win for making documentaries and uh, commercials. And I had the ambition and the desire to speak to a larger audience. And so I committed myself to a plan to become a producer of feature films. And it took me a number of years the first film was um, a movie called Only Once in a Lifetime that Alejandro Gratan wrote, directed, and co-produced uh, with me. And uh, it was a lovely little film, and it was invited to the Deauville Film Festival, and it got distribution, but it made no money. And uh, I almost lost my home. So it was my first concrete lesson of the risks of being in business and the risks of deciding to do something and what could happen. And so it sharpened my, my skills. 
and it sharpened my focus that film needed an audience and I needed to identify who that audience was going to be before I made the movie, before I risked everything again. And that I needed to have a plan for marketing that movie. I needed to have a plan for how to make the money back. And uh, so I set again on the course of making more uh, feature films, but I returned to documentaries for a couple of years. And my next film was The Ballad of Gregorio Cortes, a Western, when Westerns were dead. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I had a plan. I had a plan for how I would raise the money, how I would be able to get the money back. And I had the support of the National Council of La Raza, of Raul Izaguirre, who had in fact financed, along with Esteban Torres, my first documentary, which was uh, Requiem 29, an exploration of the moratorium and the death of Ruben Salazar of August 29th, 1970. Raul had supported me then, and I went to him and I said, Raul, I have this vision, I have this plan of taking American Latino literature, and which has an audience, which has some recognition, it has some brand value, and of transforming them into movies. And he supported that idea, and uh, he helped me get a grant from the National Endowment of the Humanities. And with that, I was able to develop the screenplays for The Ballad of Rigorio Cortez and for The Milagro Beanfield War, which were two of the movies that came out of that effort. I remember, wasn't Eddie almost connected to the first film? Well, yes, Eddie almost is the star of The Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. He played the titular role, and many say that it was his first important role that launched him into a film it career. Was. It was his first great role, no question about that. All right, so you do these two films, and that's what happens. I'm now a Hollywood producer. <laughs> Tell us about Selena. Everyone loved that film. I've seen it about three or four times, and every time that I do, I marvel at the direction, the production, the artistry of the artists, of the uh, actors. Tell us about that. Well, by that point, I had already produced a dozen feature films. I had already done um, uh, Gettysburg. I had already done uh, The Disappearance of Garcia Lorca. I had already done uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. And so I was already a credible producer uh, with my partner, Robert Katz, with the company Esparza Katz Productions. My daughter, Tonansi, uh, had gone through a challenging teenage life. And um, I was working then at that time to figure out how, you know, I could build a relationship with her. And um, she was heartbroken when Selena was killed and insisted that I had to commit myself to making a movie about her life. At that moment, I, I, I didn't see it. And, and I wasn't interested in a movie that was about a murder. And I thought that Hollywood would be most interested in the lurid murder story. But my daughter was committed uh, and she was persistent. I don't know where she gets the persistence from. Uh, and uh, she demanded that I pay attention and that I study the life of Selena. So I read some books, I listened to the music, I saw a couple of documentaries, and I finally had an idea. And the idea was is that this was a story of about a family, a family that pursued the American dream and reached it. 
And the telling the story of the family was something that I could support, that I thought could make a contribution to American Latinos and to, to the world. And so um, with uh, Carolyn Caldera, who was then my assistant, uh, we went to go find uh, Selena's father and her family. And uh, I offered myself up. I discovered that I was the last one in line and that he had already seen more than 20 producers who had come through their doors to make a movie about them and that he was already in negotiations, in fact, with someone. So I then volunteered to be his assistant and consultant to help him get the best movie made. And in doing that, Abraham saw me as a, a real potential collaborator. And then I offered to be partnered with him, 50-50 and to give him final approval over the script and who would play him and his daughter. And that made the difference. And so he finally decided to allow me to work with him to have it happen. I recommended to him my former classmate, Gregory Nava, who I thought had the right sensibility and creative feel. Gregory had already been through uh, there and uh, Abraham had not chosen him, but I told Abraham that he was the right guy. Abraham accepted. And so together then we became a team and the movie that everybody knows resulted from that partnership and collaboration with Gregory Nava writing and directing and Robert Katz and I producing with Abraham. And uh, Carolyn uh, got a uh, producing credit on that movie and today she's my partner. And uh, now I work for her. <laughs> I don't think so, but that's a good thought. Mukhtar, at a certain point, you branched out and you decided to build theaters. Tell us about that. My experience as a movie producer was that uh, without having the power of distribution, that I could never create the kind of uh, capital to be independent. And the one opening that I saw after having been in the cable TV business for some 20 odd years where I was able to help people create careers was to own movie theaters, because that was the part of the business that was the safest and most secure, where I could actually help people by putting their movies that couldn't get into theaters, into theaters. And I'm, I'm on that path, and I think I will get to a threshold with having 10, 20 locations where actually I will be able to be a force in supporting independent films and, and Latino films. How many locations are you in right now? We have four. We're in Fresno, we're in Bakersfield, Salinas, and Pittsburgh, California, a fifth in Delano that is under construction, and a sixth that is about to break ground in North Las Vegas, Nevada, with another 10 behind it that I'm working on. How many screens are we talking about that you have right now? Uh, under operating is 62 and 88 when I get the two theaters under construction completed. Wonderful. Congratulations to you. Mokta, we could go on and on and on because you have so many stories. You know so much about the business. You are, um, without a doubt, one of the pioneers, Chicano pioneers in this whole area. But not only Chicanos. I mean, you have transcended just the term Chicano and just the identity of Chicano. You have gone far beyond that. Not even a Latino is a big enough word here. You're a filmmaker. That's what you do. You're an entrepreneur. That's what you do. You're a businessman. You have created something from nothing. And like many others, I admire you for it. And I congratulate you. And I can't wait to see what other contributions you're going to make to our community. 
while I have life and breath and a beating heart, <laughs> I'm committed. You have all that indeed. One more question I think is very important. Leadership qualities. You know, you and I both are getting older, and it isn't like we're going to live forever. We have to teach our kids some of the things that we have learned as leaders. In your mind, what are those leadership qualities that you think that you know are important for our kids to, to recognize and work with as they go on their path? The word leader in Nahuatl is Tlatoani. Tlatoani translates as speaker for the people. Leadership to me is reflecting the desires and the voice of the people, our people. As long as we speak for them in their voice, what they want, what they desire, their hopes and dreams, then we are leaders. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Moctezuma, thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. I'm